0: Flip to Philippians chapter 1. And let's just begin in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to gather with these your people, those in your kingdom. And Father, we pray tonight as we spend the next several minutes in your word, visit us, Lord, from heaven with a word, a word of encouragement, instruction, admonition, that is from your heart to our heart. And how we thank you that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. In Jesus' name, amen. Actually, tonight, I'm going to give you an assignment. It's been a while, so I thought I'd lay it all on you at once. Your assignment is this you are to think of, and hopefully even write down, a slogan, a motto. If you were to sum up your life in one motto, one slogan, one banner statement, what would that be like? Actually, we are in a culture laden with slogans. They're everywhere. And that's because slogans, mottos, are memorable. They help sell a product and... Keep that in your mind over and over again so you'll never forget it, and it works. I'll prove it to you. Here's a short list of the top ten slogans of this century in our culture. Number one on the list is, diamonds are forever. Now, I'll help you with that one. That comes from the De Beers Corporation. Let's see if you can remember the next one. Just do it. See? The pause that refreshes. Coca-Cola. Few got that one. Tastes great, less filling. Miller Lite. Now, some of you guys answered that a little too quickly. I'm worried. We try harder. Good to the last drop. Maxwell. No, it should be Starbucks, shouldn't it? Breakfast of Champions. No, that's Starbucks. No, that's Wheaties. Just kidding. Does she or doesn't she? All the women at one time said Clairol. When it rains, it pours. Morton Salt. And finally, number 10, Where's the beef? Wendy's. Of course, there are other slogans that didn't make the top 10 list. Microsoft's Where Do You Want to Go Today would be one of those. Finger Lickin' Good by KFC is another. Now... In Philippians chapter 1, Paul gives us his slogan, his motto, his banner statement that summed up his life and with which he looked into the future. And it's Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Allow me tonight to reintroduce you to Paul the Apostle. I know you know him. But let's just give you a thumbnail sketch of where he has been so you appreciate where he's coming from here. When Paul the Apostle, before that Saul of Tarsus, was unsaved, he was on the way to Damascus to imprison and kill those who called upon the name of the Lord. He was radically saved. You know the story. He fell off his horse, saw a light and a vision. It was Jesus. He went into Damascus, and a disciple by the name of Ananias was given a message to give him from the Lord. You go tell this guy, Paul, Saul, that he is a special tool of mine, a messenger, to bring my name before kings, Gentiles, and the children of Israel and tell him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. How would you like to hear that the day you got saved? Go to the prayer room. They give you a Bible. They pray with you. Oh, by the way, the Lord wants you to know you're really going to (laughs) suffer. Thank you. And he did. The chapter doesn't end, but that he is running for his life out of town, being led over the wall in a basket. Then we get to his first missions trip. He goes to the island of Cyprus. He is withstood and opposed by a demon-possessed man by the name of Elamos. He goes to Antioch of Pisidia. The Jews kick him out of that town. He makes his way over to Iconium. He splits the city, half love him, half hate him. And then he is mobbed and stoned and left for dead in the city of Lystra. That's just his first mission trip. He's off to a good start, wouldn't you say? And you can count no less than five times that Paul was placed in jail. Jerusalem, Caesarea by the sea the little town of Philippi, that's the letter that he writes to here, and twice in Rome, he's in jail. You know, I've always thought whenever Paul went to a town, he would ask, could I see the jail, please, first? I want to know where I'm going to spend the night tonight. So with all of that as a background of this man, and now he is writing this letter from a Roman prison, you would think that his motto might be something like, for me to live is really a bummer. Or for me to live is to doubt the love of God in my life. For me to live is to wonder if God is really in charge of all that I have been through. No, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, Paul never saw himself as a victim. But always right in the middle of the will of God. You remember the uh, cartoon Winnie the Pooh, do you not? All those colorful characters, Winnie the Pooh characters. Um, If if life were a Winnie the Pooh episode, who would you be? Think of all the characters. Maybe you identify with the timid piglet. Or you like Pooh Bear. He eats a light. You go, "I, I relate to that guy. He likes to eat. Maybe you relate more to the important but pushy rabbit. Or perhaps Eeyore, the donkey. Remember Eeyore? He looked at himself in the stream and he saw his reflection and he said, Pathetic. (laughs) A Pooh Bear came along and said, Good morning, Eeyore. Good morning, Pooh. If it is a good morning, which I doubt. I'll tell you this. If life were a Winnie the Pooh episode, you know who Paul the Apostle would be? Tigger. Remember Tigger? Rubber on top, always flexible. Spring on the bottom, always active. Paul the Apostle would be Tigger. Always bouncing back. Now we're going to begin in verse 19 tonight. We're going to look at three verses. And this is a message I'm entitling, Forecasting Your Future. And you're going to do that in the slogan that you write tonight, the motto, the banner statement you come up with. And as we go through these three verses, I'd like you to consider three things, three emotions that shaped Paul's future. First of all, Paul was confident in future deliverance. He looked at his future with confidence. Uh, Second, he was concerned about his future witness. And third, he was committed committed to his future plan. Let's go back to verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Did you hear the tone in the way that is written? There's a tone of confidence, right? For I know. There's no uncertain notes played in that melody. I know, verse 19, this will turn out for my salvation. It would seem that... Paul, in this little statement, verse 19, in looking at his future, he's confident it would seem that he is quoting a verse of scripture. Back in the book of Job, chapter 13, verse 16, let me read it to you. He says, indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. Now remember, Job had friends around him that accused him of all sorts of things that weren't true. And he was at the lowest part of his life. And yet he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. It seems that Paul, thinking about all of the bad things that have happened to him, looks back, pulls a verse out of Job. After all, if there's a character Paul could relate to, it would be Job. And he says the same thing, the same confidence in his future. The same confident hope. It's sort of like uh, writing Romans 8.28 just a little bit differently. You remember that verse. It's one of the most famous in all of the scripture. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. So Paul is confident in future deliverance. How? We don't know. You see, Paul's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed eventually or let go. But he's confident that God will deliver him. Just a a little footnote about God delivering you. We all love it when God delivers us from our trials, but so often God wants to deliver you through your trial. We don't like that part. We love to be airlifted, do, do we not, from mountain peak to mountain peak? Forget the valleys of the shadow of death. Give me the victory. But so often God will take us through them, not from them. And Paul doesn't know that, but Paul is confident that whatever happens, he'll be delivered. Why? Why such hope? Why such confidence? Two reasons. First of all, because of the prayer of those in Philippi. Look at it. For I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. Now, Paul, in writing this, assumes that the Philippians are praying for him. He just assumes that. Though he was never too big of a person to ask people to pray for him. Oh, about two, three months ago, coming back from Israel, my wife and I stopped in London for a few days just for a little R&R. You know, when you're with 600 people going through Israel, you just need to rest we had a couple of days of rest, and I always wanted to see the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Charles Spurgeon preached. I've quoted him for years. I've read his stuff. I wanted to see his church. I knew that it was a shadow of its former self. It was bombed in the war and the face rebuilt, but we saw it. And when I saw it, it was like, wow, that's cool. And as we walked around the Metropolitan Tabernacle, all of the stories of Spurgeon came into my mind But my favorite was the time when people came to discover the secret of Spurgeon's great success and the church that he had founded and built. And Spurgeon took them to a room underneath the sanctuary where there was a group of people praying. And he said, this is the secret. This is the engine. This is what drives the train of the ministry. It's not what goes on in the pulpit. It's the prayer that goes on down here. Prayer. I'm confident in my future deliverance because of your prayers. Leonard Ravenhill once wrote this The church has many organizers, but few agonizers. Many who pay, but few who pray. Many resters, but few wrestlers. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. A worldly Christian will stop praying. And a praying Christian will stop worldliness. Tithes may build the church, but tears will give it life. Here's a question: Why is prayer so important for the ministry, for the kingdom? A couple of reasons. First of all, because spiritual work requires spiritual tools. And if you don't have the spiritual tool of prayer, then you are left with trying to do the work of God in the energy of the flesh, and you won't last very long. There's a second reason, because though God is sovereign and absolutely in control and absolutely powerful, God responds and works in cooperation with the prayers of his kids. He loves it when we depend on Him, and He loves to work as a response to our prayer. best example James could think of was the prophet Elijah, when in James chapter 5 he said, the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much, or gets the job done. And he looked to Elijah the prophet, a simple man who prayed, and God responded by shutting up the heavens three and a half years, and then later on, at his prayer, opening them back up again. There was a church in New York City. They just got a brand new organ. And uh, it was opening day for the organ to be played in that great cathedral, downtown Manhattan. The church was packed. They all wanted to hear the instrument. The musician sat down on the bench and pushed his hand on the keys. Not a note. Not a peep. Not a sound. He was frustrated. Beads of sweat started coming down his brow. What does he do? He tried it again, nothing. The custodian could see the frustration in the musician. And he figured out quickly, it wasn't plugged in. So he wrote a hasty note, basically to tell him after the invocation, he would plug it in. And the note simply read, after the prayer, the power will be on. That's what Paul is saying. I'm confident because after the prayer, your prayer for me, the power will be on. So here's Paul. He makes that banner statement because he's facing the future confident of his deliverance because of their prayers. There's a second reason he's so confident. Because the people keep praying, but also because the Spirit keeps supplying. Same verse, verse 19. I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now you could take, if you're into writing in your Bibles, you should be, take a little pencil or pen and put a carrot in between the words the and supply and write this word, lavish. The lavish supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And that's because that's the best, most full meaning of the word. Lavishly supply. It's a Greek word, epikoregios. Don't worry, you don't have to remember it, you won't be quizzed on it. Epikoregios, lavishly supply, is a word that we get the idea of a chorus from. Epikoregios. A little while ago when Todd came out and he was singing a lone voice and a guitar. A beautiful, beautiful sound. But there came a time in the service where he added other voices. He had a choir out here. And one voice layered upon another, upon another, that gave a lavish supply of voices. That's a, that's the meaning of the word, epichoregios. Lavishly supplying us with voices of praise. So this is what Paul is saying. Your future looks good because the Holy Spirit will give you everything you need once you get there. Billy Graham loves to say that the hand of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Another way of saying what Zechariah the prophet said, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by... My spirit says the Lord. Tonight, all of us in this room stand on two parts of the same path. One part is behind you. That's where you've been. One part is in front of you. That's where you're going. It's a lot easier to look back than it is to look forward. You know what's been in the past. And some of it has not been pretty. It's been hard. It's been difficult. But as you look back, you gotta confess tonight, I made it. I'm here. Has God ever failed you once? Has God ever made a promise to you that He didn't keep? Answer, no. Okay, now you look to the future. And there's a big question mark there. What's the future going to hold? For some of you, a marriage. For others of you, a promotion. For others of you, you'll be fired. For others of you, a death. For still others, a disease. But I will guarantee you this, and Paul faces the future with confidence, because he knows whatever comes ahead, I know the Spirit of God will be there, and he'll pay the tab. He will lavishly supply whatever I need. So, Paul is confident in future deliverance because he has praying friends and plenty of fuel, the Spirit of God. Look at verse 20 now. Let's take a shift here. After being confident in the future deliverance, now Paul expresses a concern that he has. He is concerned about his future witness. According to my earnest expectation and hope, That in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now, also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. You see those two words, earnest expectation? What that means, here's the picture. It means to watch with an outstretched head. To watch something with an outstretched head or neck. Picture a kid watching a parade. The floats come by, and there's one float he wants to see. He didn't want to miss it, so he'll put his neck way, way out, and he'll look down the street, see if it's coming. He didn't want to miss it. That's the idea of earnest expectation. As I look to the future, Paul would say, there's one thing I really don't want to miss, there's one thing I want to focus on more than anything else, and that is that I give the right witness to the world. You see, Paul understood that though he was in a Roman prison, he was in a very important place. And here's the place. Roman soldiers were watching him. Roman officials were scoping him out. People on the outside, Jewish leaders, Christian leaders, other churches were looking at him to see how this apostle would react under pressure. And so he says, I'm confident in the future, as long as you keep praying, because the Holy Spirit will keep supplying what I'm concerned about is that I will supply the right kind of witness to the world that is watching me. That's my earnest expectation and hope. That in nothing I shall be ashamed but bold as always. I do wish that more believers were concerned about their witness. Rather than just a cavalier attitude of, oh, I'm under grace, who cares, so what, God's good. Ooh, hallelujah, That we would be concerned about what we do, what we say, how we act, looks to the world, who is watching us with scrutiny. I remember talking to a young man who just got out of prison for several counts of illegal activity. And as I talked to him, he really didn't seem to care about it at all. I said, "Oh, yeah, you know we all blow it, but I'm a Christian. And he was very loose and cavalier about all the things he had done. But just, oh, yeah, hallelujah, praise God, I'm a Christian. I said, do us all a favor. Don't tell anybody that you're a Christian, at least for a while. Let's get a witness going here. Let's have a little concern about how the name of Christ is going to look as you live and act. We'll look a little more carefully at that verse. He says that in nothing I shall be ashamed. He wants to make sure that his witness is without any personal embarrassment. You know, it is embarrassment that keeps us from sharing the gospel. We're afraid of what other people will say or what they'll think if we tell them about Jesus Christ. Nobody wants to be rejected. A survey was taken at a Billy Graham crusade in Detroit, Michigan. It was a training session. And one question was asked, what's your greatest hindrance to witnessing? 9% said they were too busy to remember to do it. 28% felt the lack of real information to share. 12% said their lives weren't what they should be. The largest group, over half, 51% said they were fearful of how the other person would react. We can relate to that. I can relate to that. I remember when I was first saved and I wanted to preach the gospel and I was so scared. I didn't want to speak to anybody about Jesus. Religion, I could talk about that. Jesus, that's a little too personal. But I knew I wanted to do it. I just didn't know how. And what made it more difficult for me is I worked at a Chevron station in California and one of the school heroes worked with me. Angus McIntosh. And I thought, I can't speak to Angus Macintosh. He's Angus Macintosh. He's so cool. And I remember trying to speak to him, but I felt so fearful, so embarrassed. That's Paul's concern. Paul's concern is that he wouldn't live that kind of a life. Howard, Howard Hendricks said this, In the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. Paul continues, his concern is that his witness would be with the proper expression. He says, same verse, that with all boldness, as always, so now. Boldness is the opposite of being embarrassed. It means freedom of speech. You know, I've noticed something about our world. Our world is bold. Very bold about what it believes in. They're not afraid to express what their values are. The world is bold when it comes to their stand on homosexuality. Very bold. Look at the parades. The world is bold when it comes to its values concerning marriage, divorce, sexual promiscuity. Look at the sitcoms. Or Howard Stern. A bold world. The world is bold about every form of wickedness. It's time that Christians be at least as bold as the world when it comes to representing the gospel. How do we do that? The answer has been given in verse 19. Through prayer and through the supply of the Holy Spirit. Remember back in Acts chapter 8, the early church was arrested because of their witness in Jerusalem. The law was passed. Don't speak anymore in this name. So they got together in their group. And Acts chapter 4 says, When they prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. Cool prayer meeting to be in. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word with boldness. Back in A.D. 167, Polycarp, who was the bishop of the church of Smyrna, was arrested. He was an old man. He was arrested because of his bold stand for the gospel. As they brought him before the council, the pro-council said, you have one chance to recant, deny Jesus Christ, we'll withdraw the charges and we'll let you go free. And Polycarp stood there very confident. He said, let me tell you something. For 86 years, I have served my Savior. He's never denied me once. I'm not going to deny him now. This angered the judge, who said, I have wild beasts. Polycarp said, call for them. Bring it on. This angered the judge even more. He said, I'll burn you with fire. You know what Polycarp said? He said, you threaten me with fire that will only last One hour on my body and you face an eternity of fire in hell. That be bold. (laughs) And Paul has always been bold and is concerned that even now in prison, I'm confident of future deliverance, but I'm concerned about my future witness. Let's go on. Same verse. He's concerned that he'll do it with a passion, a passionate exaltation. That Christ will be magnified in my body by life or by death. Now remember what Paul's core thought is. That outstretched neck. He's really concerned and focused on one thing, and that is that my witness is intact and that God gets all the glory. How? He says, through my body. Just a, a note here. Sometimes I'll hear Christians say things like, well, it's what's inside the heart that matters. The body isn't all that important. Well, Paul said that we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Romans chapter 12, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. Romans chapter 6, present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness unto God. 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The body is important. Here's the idea. Lord, if only my hands could act like your hands, if only my feet could act like your feet, if I could run after those who don't know you and reach out to those who haven't yet found you and speak with my mouth your words, that's how the Lord would be magnified through his body. What a great thought, isn't it? That everything you do, your occupation, your hobbies, your friendships, everything in your life could be brought under the submission of Christ so as to influence other people and affect them. We've all heard the name Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, great composer, a believer. He began every one of his scores, as he sat down to write, he put two initials at the top of the page, J-J, meant Jesu Juva, Jesus, please help me. And then he would write, and at the end of his score, he would write three more initials. He would write S, D, G, Soli Dei Gratia, to Him, to God alone be the praise. Everything brought under that dominion of Christ for His glory. And notice the words that Christ will be magnified. It means to enlarge or to make great. Now, i got a question for you. How do you make great the greatest person who's ever lived? Especially through your body. That I might magnify, make large. You know, usually we magnify our body. Here he says, my hope is that I might magnify, make large, make greater, the greatest person who's ever lived through my body. How do we do that? Let me give you an illustration that'll help. If you go outside and you look up at the heavens, you see stars, but beyond them are billions of other stars, billions of other galaxies, you know that. Some of those stars are much larger than even our sun. Some of those stars, we are told, are a thousand million miles in diameter. I don't know if they took a long measuring stick, but that's what they figure. 12,000 times larger than our sun. But they're so far away you don't see them unless you get a telescope. And with the elements of glass and you proportion it just right, that which is far away is brought close and you appreciate it. That's what it is with Jesus Christ. To most people, Jesus Christ is some fuzzy historical figure who lived 2,000 years ago, irrelevant, out of date, and then you show up, and people watch you, and suddenly by what you say and what you do through your body, He's made large. He's magnified. And people go, oh, I see Him. I can see Him through you. Especially when we suffer as Paul was suffering. You have an opportunity to enlarge the character of Christ in the eyes of people. Now we get to the last final verse, which is the third and final point, and we'll close with this. We've already sort of introduced it. And that is, Paul was committed to his future plan. Committed to his future plan. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the motto of his life. That's the slogan that he was able to face the future with. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a great statement. It's a great way to live. It's a great way to die. It'd be great on a grave. I could imagine Paul the Apostle, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I I have photographed throughout the years all sorts of gravestones around the world. Some of them are long and some of them are short, the inscriptions on them. Some of them are very moving. Some of them are boring. One that I found very fascinating was a dentist. It said, here lies John Smith filling his last cavity. (laughs) That's it. Living and dying, filling his last cavity. I like Paul's better, don't you? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, what one sentence captures your life? Fill in the blanks. For me to live is blank, to die is blank. Now depending on how you answer that makes all the difference. For if you say, for me to live is money, then you'll have to say to die is to leave it all behind. If you say, for me to live is notoriety, then you'll have to say then to die is to be quickly forgotten. And if you say, for me to live is to have a perfect physique like Arnold Schwarzenegger, then you'll have to say, then for me to die is really, really a drag. Because you'll get really ugly really quick <laughs> after that. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Think about that. That summed up his life. For me to live is Jesus Christ. Paul, what motivates you? Jesus. Paul, why do you get up in the morning? Jesus. Jesus. What do you do all day long, Jesus? What do you write in all those letters to all the churches? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's like the kid who went to a church for the first time, went to Sunday school. Afterwards, mom said, how'd you like Sunday school? She said, the little girl said, I loved it. Do you remember your Sunday school teacher's name? She thought, she goes, no, I don't remember who she was, but she must have been Jesus' grandmother because he's the only one she could talk about. That was Paul. For me to live is Christ. Then, he says, it gets better. To die is gain. If living for Christ is awesome, then to die is even better. It is so opposite from our culture. If there's one thing our culture dreads, it's death. We will prolong our life as, as as much as we can, as long as we can, or or if we can't, we'll do everything to make it look like we do. You know what I mean? We'll go to the doctor and we'll go we'll like, stretch it way back like this. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, no, this is my natural face, really. And then they die and we go, oh, he was so young. No, he was 130. He just looked really good. We'll do anything we can to prolong life another day. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die, it's better. I heard about three guys. They died in the same car crash. They all went up to heaven. There was Peter with the clipboard, like in all these dumb jokes. And, <laughs> and Peter said, guys, at your funeral, when you're lying in the casket, and there's people all around you looking at you, what is the one thing you want to hear people say about you? The first guy said, I think I'd like to hear him say he was a great doctor of his time, made many improvements for mankind. The second fellow said, I think I'd like them to say that he was a good husband and father, a wonderful school teacher that loved kids. The third guy had a puzzled look on his face. He said, I think I'd like to hear them say, look, he's moving. <laughs> We just hate the idea of dying. <laughs> now, why would Paul say it's gain? Why would Paul say it's gain? Because he knew the work of God is not done till we're glorified. We've been predestined, he said. We've been called. We've been justified. But the ultimate finished work is when we're glorified. And you've got to die to get that or be raptured. So to die is gain. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why when a Christian dies, never say he died. Never say she died. Say she moved. That's more accurate. He moved. I've always thought that the last breath a believer takes, and I've heard some struggle, that death, anxiety, it's horrible. It's painful sometimes. And unfortunately, that's what we remember. But I got to think, I've got to know that that first breath on the other side sounds so different. It must sound something like, wow! <laughs> this is cool. This is awesome. To die is gain. So, what about your slogan? What about your motto? In fact, let me close with a motto. Where do you want to go today? That's what Microsoft asks. But I'll rephrase it. Where do you want to go tomorrow? Where do you want to go for eternity? Are you considering Christ? Just do it. Just do it. And listen, diamonds aren't forever. Only heaven is. If you're not in love with Jesus Christ, don't figure on going to heaven. That's just the bottom line. That's the honest truth. I've been to so many funerals and I've heard some preachers or some people give a eulogy. The guy didn't want anything to do with God and suddenly this guy gives this flowery eulogy and just pushes him right over into heaven. Why on earth would God take you to heaven if you want nothing to do with him here? Why would he make you be with him forever? But if for you to live is Christ... If that marks your life, Christ, and you've got a lot to look forward to. Friend, if you're a Christian, no matter how bad it's been this week, this month, this year, this is the closest you'll ever get to hell. And that's worth rejoicing in. But listen, I got good news and bad news. If you're not a Christian, you want nothing to do with God, however bad it's been in your life, however good it's been in your life, this is as close as you'll ever get to heaven. That's depressing. Doesn't have to be that way. In a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to change that forever, to write a new slogan to face your future differently. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, We just read and probed and considered a few short sentences of a man who faced an enormous amount of persecution and an enormous amount of opposition. And yet, he looked to the future, it was so bright, and he could say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die, wow, it gets better, it's gain."